0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. We'll now begin the program for our radio and Internet audiences. Once again, I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club. Tonight's event is the second in our thought leadership series, Destination Health, featuring in-depth conversations on the challenges affecting physical, mental, and social health. This series is underwritten by and in collaboration with Kaiser Permanente. And to frame the issue of gun violence, I'm now pleased to present Dr. Bashara Shukher, M.D., Vice Senior Vice President and Chief Community Health Officer at Kaiser Permanente. Dr. Schuker.
1: All right. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. And uh, I'd like to take a moment just to set the stage uh, for tonight's discussion. Every day in the United States, health professionals confront the effects of firearm injury in the clinical arena. In emergency departments and trauma centers, in ambulatory offices, in acute care facilities and rehabilitation facilities... Health professionals and the health systems where they work attempt to heal the wounds that firearms inflict on individuals, their families, and our communities. Kaiser Permanente, as the largest integrated health system in the country, we feel like we have a responsibility to bring together health leaders, clinicians, and providers to help solve the challenges that impact the health of our own members and our communities. Whether it's suicide, homicide, accidental firearm death, we can and we will contribute to prevention. Organizations across the country have been calling for political action to stem the tide of gun violence in America for decades. Yet, as a country, we have not been able to move the needle with political solutions that touch upon gun ownership. And that is why Kaiser Permanente is focusing its attention on moving past politics and searching for non-political solutions. For example, last year we've assembled together a task force um, dedicated to firearm injury prevention we've committed $2 million to help research firearm injury prevention. And by studying firearm injury prevention in the same way we study cancer, heart disease, and other leading causes of death, we hope and we know we will be able to offer a better way forward by developing and improving preventive interventions to save lives. And recently, we've collaborated with the American Hospital Association to host a workshop at the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, engaging leading researchers, physicians, public health advocates, and others to begin to close the gap in research and discover how to best integrate firearm injury prevention into clinical care. And with this event tonight, We hope to hear from experts what non-political solutions they might think are viable to move the needle on this challenging public health crisis so that together we can make progress that has eluded us for so long. This is no surprise to anybody. This is a critical public health issue, and it requires us to move past the politics around gun ownership, and we need to be able to develop non-political solutions to this crisis. I am excited to hear what these thought leaders have to say, and I'm sure you are too. And now I'd like to welcome back uh, Dr. Duffy back to the podium. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dr. Shuker, and thank you so much for Kaiser Permanente's leadership on this issue. I'm now pleased to turn the program over to our moderator and the panel. Our moderator is Brian Watt, morning news anchor for KQED Radio. Brian joined the KQED news team in 2016. Prior to that, he was a reporter for KPCC in Los Angeles and a producer at Marketplace. Please welcome to the stage Brian Watt and our panelists.
2: Thank you, Dr. Duffy. It's now my pleasure to introduce our panelists. Dr. Kai Hunter is vice president of the Brady United Campaign, the nation's oldest gun violence prevention organization. She is also a former U.S. Marine Combat Super Cobra helicopter pilot. Serving multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, Dr. Hunter also co-founded Vets for Gun Reform and is also currently an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Master's in National Security Studies program. Dr. Thea James, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Boston University and Director of the Violence Intervention Advocacy Program at Boston Medical Center. In 2011... Dr. James was appointed to Attorney General Eric Holder's National Task Force on Children Exposed to Violence. Steve Kerr is the head coach of the Golden State Warriors. (laughs) And a passionate advocate for gun violence prevention. As a survivor of gun violence, Coach Kerr regularly uses his public platform to raise awareness of the epidemic of gun violence in America. Finally, Mike McLively is senior staff attorney at the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. He's the director of the Community Violence Initiative, where he leads an effort to promote evidence-based violence intervention strategies... Aimed at reducing gun violence in America's most impacted communities. Please, everyone, one more welcome for our panel. When gun violence makes the news, it's all raw emotions, the anxiety of the crisis, the Sadness of the senseless loss of life or damage to life. The vigils, the moments of silence. But what you hear less about in the news is the cost of gun violence to society. So, Mike McLevel, you're sitting the closest to me. (laughs) What is the cost? What cost does society bear? You have written about this and you know what society is paying for gun violence.
3: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the human cost is you cannot calculate that. Um, but I think it is important that we also pay attention to the enormous economic cost that's associated with gun violence. We have costs for the, the law enforcement system, the healthcare care system, uh, people who are losing wages for missing work. Those costs add up to the hundreds of billions of dollars when we're looking nationwide. So at Giffords, we've been releasing reports that help each state understand the full economic cost of gun violence, because a lot of the best solutions that I hope we'll talk about tonight require an investment to really scale them up. And that investment is minuscule compared to the huge burden that gun violence imposes on our society.
2: Is there one community one state for example that you could put a ballpark figure on how much they wound up paying because of gun violence
3: we've estimated this recently for the state of massachusetts just as an example and it's 1.2 billion dollars and you know when you look at that's just directly measurable costs we can measure so like i was mentioning healthcare costs law enforcement when you add in pain and suffering those figures rise even more. So for the country, I'll give you that figure, it's $229 billion is the estimate. And when you look at the solutions, at the federal level, for example, we're investing just tens of millions of dollars in some of the most impressive solutions to gun violence, like hospital-based violence intervention programs, street outreach work, work that really gets at the core of what's driving the gun violence epidemic in the United States, which I hope we'll talk about later in the evening as well, which is violence in our communities, particularly underserved communities of color, and really investing and scaling up those solutions costs nothing compared to what this problem is inflicting on us. And I think it's a way to bring together bipartisan support, right? Not everyone can get behind the politics of gun safety, but when you see what this is inflicting on us as a country, it's just like with criminal justice reform. We've seen huge movement there where folks have realized we can no longer afford to put so many people behind bars, and I think we can no longer afford inaction when it comes to gun violence.
2: Since you mentioned Massachusetts, let me ask Dr. Thea James. <laughs> what hidden costs do hospitals bear? What do we not hear about on the news that hospitals process in terms of resources, infrastructure, and money?
4: Well, I think from my perspective, uh, I always look at the human perspective of it. It's quite unnatural for, to be looking at young bodies you know, lying on these... Um, gurneys in trauma rooms, um, shot, and, um, you know, perhaps it's human nature, I'm not sure, but when people uh, see these young people, they stigmatize because of the nature of the injury, often, and so um, I think people often think in urban violence, if you get shot, only bad people get shot, or something like that, and so, um, but I always wonder what, how did this happen, and what's at the root of this? And I've said this some years ago, but, you know, the tattoos would always tell the story to me. Mm. Tattoos would say things like, born to be hated, dying to be be loved, or um, living is hard, dying is easy, or death is nothing, but to live defeated is to die every day. And so those um, are are, uh, themes of hopelessness to me, and so I think when... When we have our own per perspective or perception of who these young people are, with and just focus on the injury and you know the excitement of what happened, and not try to understand what is the root cause of that, because the injury itself is a downstream consequence of root causes upstream, like inequities in uh, or insecurities in housing and income and education attainment, and there are reasons why these events happen in certain communities. And there are the certain community, the same communities where people have housing issues and where there's low education attainment and all of those things are directly connected to health. And so we miss opportunities to mitigate and eliminate that when we just focus downstream and not focus upstream. And sometimes you'll hear people say these days that when I go to the doctor, I don't want to like the doctor. I don't want to talk to the doctor about uh, housing or, or income or employment, but we have to do that, and those are also people who don't have those issues. But we have to do that because doctors focus on disease, and um, doctors are chasing disease, and patients are chasing life, and the two don't align, and meanwhile all these other things like gun violence are, are happening. So what I'm saying is that you can operationalize um, upstream interventions, even on uh, gun violence in your in your hospital, because it's causing you more money if you don't do that. Mm. You know, because you know there's a there's a good chance that once a person is injured, once they're going to come back injured again if you don't if you don't drive that. And by the way, these are like really highly intelligent, smart, warm, and quite emotionally vulnerable young people. Mm. And um, they have, they can achieve, and they do achieve. And as um, Mike said, you know, maybe we'll have an
2: opportunity to talk about that later. Absolutely. L- let me get a little bit Thank you. Thank you. Um, more to the personal now, um, and ask Coach Steve Kerr if you're comfortable sharing how gun violence touched your life and why you choose to speak out
5: yeah um you know that's that's why i'm here so um well thank you but i appreciate you uh you know putting the question that way but um yeah so i lost my dad in 1983 i was 18 years old and he was a victim of terrorism in beirut he was the president of the american university in beirut and he was killed by two gunmen uh just outside of his office And so I have experienced uh, the pain. My family has experienced the uh, incredible pain and suffering that comes from losing uh, a family member to gun violence. And so there's, as Dr. James talked about, there's such a personal uh, cost in every single story, right? So, you know, you pick up the the paper, you, you get online, you read... You know, maybe there was a mass shooting. It seems to happen every day. Um, nine people were killed, right? I don't pay attention to the nine, the number nine. I I, I read the names, mm-hmm. you know, and then I read I read their stories. I want to know who those people were. They were husbands, fathers, sons, daughters, uh, and their their families are suffering. And so because. My family and I went through what we did. Um, I'm, we're all touched uh, every single day by um, the stories that we read of people around this country uh, losing uh, friends and family members to gun violence. And so that's why, um, that's why I'm here. I like to share my story to remind people that it's not just about stats. It's not just about money. It's, it's the, the personal cost. It's the human cost. And um, and those, uh, as Mike said, are immeasurable. You know, you can't you can't put a cost on on what your father means to you, or your sister, or your brother, or daughter, or son. And um, if we can prevent at least some of those deaths, then we're doing uh, amazing good for for the the community and for the country.
2: Doctor Hunter, your organization, the Brady United Campaign, it's named for Jim Brady. He was permanently disabled as a result of the Ronald Reagan assassination attempt of 1981. I remember that as a child, but I remember as a young adult working in Washington, D.C. in 1993, was standing outside the chamber of the House of Representatives, about 10 feet from Jim Brady. While the congressmen walked by, men and women walked by to vote on the Brady Bill. That was 1993. It was a victory for gun control advocates. But gun violence has continued since then. And your work has continued since then. How has your work evolved
6: yeah, thank you, and, and thank you for being there with Jim. I know he would be very proud of you sitting here today, too. So thank you for that one. Um, you know, This has been an issue that's been going on for a long time, but I think if you look at 1993 and now, we're actually looking at some very fundamentally different landscapes in America. I mean, there are things that we're seeing right now that could never have been predicted in 1993, which is really important to look at. One is just the sheer number of guns that exist in this country. Um, in 1993, there was about... And this is not going to be the exact number, so don't, but about 1.5 million guns in civilian hands in 1993. Um, as of 2018, when the Global Small Arms Survey was most recently released, there are 393 million guns in civilian hands in the United States. And to put that in context, that is... of the world's handguns, rifles, and shotguns. So there are more handguns, rifles, and shotguns in civilian hands in the United States than there are in the entire U.S. military. I think you look at that, like, coming from the Marine Corps, like, we're really proud about being riflemen, but to think that civilians have more guns than the, the military fundamentally changes the landscape we're talking about. And so something we have fundamentally realize and are really working on is that if we are going to prevent gun violence, we need to bring gun owners into this conversation. Because we can pass all the laws we want. There are still 393 million guns that are out there. And so we've spent at Brady a lot of time going out and talking with gun owners across the country. And one thing we have found is that Gun owners fundamentally want the same thing. They are opposed to gun violence. And so we need to dig into community-based solutions, whether that is work around safe storage with the End Family Fire program that we have started that focuses on the fact that every day there are eight kids in this country that are shot by a gun that they find in the home that's loaded and unlocked. And that's a gun that somebody brought in with probably great intentions. They want to protect themselves but that's also the first line of risk for their family. Every 16 hours, a woman is murdered by an intimate partner with a gun that she bought for self-defense as, a, as part of it. Um, 75% of these school shootings that we see, and these are what allow kids in this country to just live in fear everywhere, are facilitated by the fact that they found a gun, a student at the school found a gun in their home. And when you go out and we engage with gun owners and we talk about this, these are non-political things we can do around how we're securing guns, what sort of storage options are available, how we need to change that conversation, because that's what starts to prevent guns from getting into the wrong hands. And then we can start having the next level of, of conversations that we need. But if we can agree on these simple steps around preventing these tragedies that so often get called accidents, but they're not accidents. You know, there, there's a reason in the military we call them neglig- negligent discharges mm. because it's negligence that causes it. It's not some unavoidable accident like stubbing your toe when you wake up in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And so I think what we've really seen is that we need to move beyond the politics in Washington and really focus on how we are engaging with our communities and our neighbors and the people we're talking to every single day to fundamentally keep our country safer and when we start to engage in those conversations we see real meaningful change
2: it's so hard to keep politics out of this but
6: what where where
2: and how does that conversation start the non-political solutions what are examples of some that have resonated that any of you have seen work and are and are proud to talk about
3: I'll jump in here. I mean, I think in the community violence space, it's important to understand for all of us that you know gun violence is several different problems. It's a multifaceted issue, right? There's the suicide component that has its own set of causes and solutions, and there's there's homicide, interpersonal shootings, accidental shootings. Each of those has its own set of solutions. And where my work focuses is on community violence. And I think the city of Oakland, right across the bay, is a great example of non-political solutions that have been implemented in recent years that have, we believe, led to a 50% reduction in homicides and shootings since 2012. And that's a story of great hope uh, that a lot of people that I've talked to who live in the Bay Area, who even live in Oakland, don't know that that's going on. And so we released a report last year called A Case Study in Hope uh, that helps highlight what's going on. And just really quickly to walk through this, none of this has to do with politics or regulating guns. The strategies had to do with doing a problem analysis to understand and use data to understand what was driving and who was driving the majority of violence in Oakland. And like many cities across the United States, what they found was that the vast majority of violence was being caused by a very small percentage of people. We're talking about several hundred people in a city of more than 400,000 people. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that if you can intervene with that population in an effective way, you can have a massive impact on your gun violence rate in a very short period of time. And those interventions, again, don't have to do with guns. They have to do with working person-to-person and addressing the trauma, the economic inequality, some of those underlying issues that are leading to people picking up a gun to resolve a conflict in the first place. And the other thing that this shows us is that looking at the data helped dispel a lot of myths. I mean, in Oakland for many years it was believed that gun violence was the result of thousands of young people spread around the city who were having disputes over drugs. That turned out to not be the right, that was not correct at all. And so solutions were tailored to what was actually driving the problem and intervening with that highest risk population with things like Hospital-based violence intervention programs, which I'm sure Dr. James will talk about. But as she mentioned, people who have been shot are at a very high risk of being shot again or themselves perpetrating violence. And that creates a cycle in our cities. And programs like that intervention give us an opportunity to intervene in that cycle. And I don't know a single person from either political party who would object to providing services and intervention to victims of crime, people who have been shot. So we can get bipartisan support on that. And there's fantastic evidence out there that solutions like hospital-based violence intervention work, they reduce the violence recidivism rate and bring down violence rates in our cities. Anyone could get behind that. It's more an issue of are we aware of that as a solution and are we lifting it up to our political leaders and making sure that America is scaling this up across mm. the country. We have maybe 40 or 50 of those programs for the entire country. There should be hundreds to meet the scale of this problem in America. Can I ask I think,
6: you, oh, Dr. I, oh. oh, I was going to say, as a, as a direct compliment to that, which is, I think, where this works, works very well on the demand and the supply together, is that another, I think, alarming statistic that we hear about, or people don't really hear about once you see it out there, is that 90% of the guns that are recovered during crimes can be traced back to less than 5% of all dealers in the country. Yeah. Hmm. And so we are, we are working as a complement to these programs very closely with local law enforcement to go out and actually be empowered to inspect dealers in their area and identify these bad business practices because there, there are negligent bad business practices of these few irresponsible actors that allow for it being easier for someone to pick up a gun and, and choose death than actually get access to vocational training later on during their life. And so, so that's another, and it's completely, this is not political, it's not banning guns, it's very much enforcing the law. And it's also engaging dealers to say, how are your business practices actually bettering your communities and bringing them into, into the community conversations? And this has seen a, had a big impact in... Uh, crime in uh impacted communities but also in suicide you mm. know when you have a gun dealer who simply just asks somebody why do you want to buy a gun you know, there was a study done out in uh grand county colorado where dealers started just asking people who were coming in why do you want to buy a gun and that simple question reduced the death by gun suicide rate by almost 30 percent in a year just because somebody was willing to ask them that question, and this isn't a mental health professional, but it goes to that, that person-person connection. How are you engaging? How are you bringing this into, these, in, into the community conversations that nobody wants to see Americans die? And, and so it, it creates quite a bit of not just bipartisan, <laughs> but really holistic community and business support.
2: Dr. James, I want to hear a little bit more about hospital-based violence prevention. You're on the front lines. (laughs) Can you help those of us who aren't as familiar with the process of it understand it better?
4: Sure. Well, it's interesting. Um, There's a bit of nostalgia going on here, at least within me, because um, what was the National Network of Hospital-Based Violence Intervention Programs, which is now the Health Alliance for Violence Intervention, it actually was born right here across the bridge, and uh, over in Oakland, the first um, hospital-based violence program in the country was caught in the crossfire and was funded when it started by Kaiser. So, you know, it's full circle, mm-hmm. interestingly enough. And, um, you know, we actually created it with seven programs. We now have um, about 60 across the country, with 40 of them being members of, uh, of the Javi, as we call it, and um, about 20 emerging programs as well. We provide, um, and the reason it works, first of all, is because engagement you know, is the lowest hanging fruit to a, a path of trust and transformation, from my perspective. Engaging with a person one-on-one, it's the last thing these young people expect, first of all, someone who they can trust and who does what they say they're going to do. And actually just, um, uh, just getting in their uh minds and, and, and helping them to see that there are other ways, but almost sort of like leaving it up to them and then helping to make sure that that happens. But um, we have a really robust membership. Um, we have a national conference every year. This year we're expected to have about 600 people attending the conference. Mm. We do uh, technical assistance. Um, we have a new executive director. Uh, Fatima Mohammed who started last year. And uh, I'm I'm mentioning her because New Jersey just committed $20 million to setting up, uh, establishing um, hospital-based violence programs, multiple ones in New Jersey. And the Javi is the lead um, TA provider for for those. Um, And the last thing I'll say is we also, um, so we do a lot of TA and developing, helping programs to develop. We also have... Um, work groups and learning and uh, and learning communities in uh, four areas we have them in workforce that's working the the people who are on the front lines Mm -hmm. Um, and and by the way without them nothing would happen because they are the people who are getting people to engage with them we also have um, policy which works a lot in in the advocacy area and um, you know like trying to get violence intervention professionals as uh, something that, uh, you know, that enables reimbursement. Um, and uh, we also have research and evaluation and mental health. So um, it has grown and evolved like, like, like you wouldn't believe. And um, um, it, 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 is, it does reduce and alter the life course of people. You know, we have seen young people go from just being a person with maybe a a GED and, you know, has um, maybe been injured a couple of times. And this is why I say they're so talented. Like five and a half, six years later, they have college degrees in some cases, um, like graduate degrees, like MBAs and things like that. And so they just need um, the humanism part of it. Mm -hmm. And so... uh, these programs are incredibly important and incredibly impactful. We see it all the time. And I just want to say one last thing. I said that was the last <laughs> thing. But, you know, we, I do a lot of work these, these days also in uh, determinants of health. And a lot of what I learned about in social determinants of health and focusing on, focusing on upstream came from the work of working with this population of young people and watching how we were able to alter their life course and translating that to everyone because the root cause is the same.
0: You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program.
2: Coach Kerr, as a survivor, as someone who has been touched by gun violence, what solutions that you hear about resonate with you as someone who's been through it?
5: Well, I think, you know, the and family fire program with Brady is, uh, it rings a bell for me because, you know, I lived in San Antonio for five years uh, when I was playing in the NBA and it was at a a time when my kids were very young. I have three kids. uh, They're all grown up now, but at the time they were, you know, eight, six and two or something. And so we, we moved down there. I grew up in Southern California. Um, I don't think I ever saw a gun. uh, So, we get to San Antonio, and you know, the, one of the first days of school, our oldest son gets, at, I, actually he was, I think, six years old, he gets invited uh, to a, a friend's house for a play date, and the, the the mother of the child calls my wife, Margo, and says, uh, you know, so-and-so would like Nick to come over and play. Would that be okay? Margo says, yeah, that'd be great. You know, he's, he hasn't met anybody yet. He'd love to meet a new friend. And and the first thing she said was, I want you to know our guns are, are locked up. And we were like, yeah. <laughs> we're not wow. in Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it was, uh, you know, we, we sort of looked at each other like, so wh- how wow. are we supposed to respond to this? But what we quickly realized, that's really good. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So so he got got to go. Yeah. Yeah. He we we, he got to go, Um, (laughs) and and we but we quickly realized that's a question that we should ask, um, you know, for any because it's it's a part of the culture in San Antonio. A lot of hunting goes Mm -hmm. on, and Mm -hmm. and most of our friends down there who uh, we we've made some wonderful friends. Most of them had guns, mostly hunting rifles and that kind of thing, and. It was a it was a critical part of raising your child there right. that you wanted to make sure that if they were going to be in somebody else's home, that those guns were going to be locked up, and so I love uh, the the end family fire program through Brady, and I work with a lot of the different groups. That we're doing a, uh, a an event in Oakland next month uh, with the Giffords group with Mike and. And Rob and Thomas and their their group we're bringing a couple of our players out and we're doing some outreach with the local community there. It's going to be it's going to be great. But but the end family fire program is important because it 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 should cross every boundary, right? If you're a gun owner, how could you how could you possibly be against? Uh, a measure that's just going to keep your child safe, going to keep everybody in, who enters your house safe, and it should just be uh, an absolute. Uh, in for for anybody who owns a gun, it should be priority number one, right? And uh, so, ending family fire really is a program to uh, to remind everyone of that and that how important it is, and that that I think uh, it's it's already been mentioned, but you know eight. Eight children every day are shot. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I I like that phrase, not by accident, right? Um, Because if the gun is out and and not secured, it's not really an accident. It's sort of right there for it to happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think think it's a, a wonderful program.
2: There is a question from the audience asking if any of you think it's time to, quote, teach or educate people about the misuse of guns and mental health signs that could lead to violence yep. at the school level. I mean, it's, it's one thing to factor in this question, are your guns locked up when your child is uh, going to a friend's house? It's another thing to think about whether your child should be learning about misuse yeah so so
6: this is a this is a really important question that we get we get a lot like how to how to actually engage the youth around this and i think one of the most important things to remember is that this should not be kids responsibilities it should not be the responsibility of a two-year-old four-year-old six-year-old 14-year-old 17-year-old whatever it is to be responsible for adult behavior so that's that's number one. And I think the, the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, did a report uh, about a year and a half ago that was evalu- evaluating a lot of these programs that were taking place in school. And it actually found that teaching kids, like, don't touch guns, don't do things with, like, you know, tell an adult, get a safety friend, whatever these things are, is incredibly ineffective. And actually about 40% of kids who will repeat back these lines and say, you know, what do you do when you find a gun? Oh, don't touch them. Don't do, you know, get a safety friend. When they actually are presented with the opportunity to see a gun, Mm. what do they do? They go play with it because they're kids and that's what they do. And so I think putting the onus on kids is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. That said, kids and youth are also a very, very powerful messenger to persuade adults to engage in better behavior. Mm -hmm. And so we've been working with the end family fire project um, very closely with the schools in Marin County again here just across the bay to engage with the PTA and the school district to teach kids about what safe storage is essentially to bring it up at home to their parents like hey are we doing this thing much like recycling was persuaded around with kids quite a bit, you know, like, do we have our blue bins out? Like, what, what are we doing? You know, mm-hmm. smoking cessation. You also often see kids are the ones who guilted parents to stop smoking. Single-use plastic. I say, you know, we all have glass water bottles down here, which is great. <laughs> you know, like, like kids, kids are often the ones too. or like, why do we have single-use plastic? Why are we doing this? You know, kids are a really powerful tool to engage their parents. And we've actually seen that as well. The, the data bears that out, that of looking at gun-owning parents, um, close to 80% changed their mind about how they stored their guns the first time their kids asked them a question about having a gun in the house. And so, I mean, that's, that's a huge thing. The first time a kid, and this is ages, again, two to 18, said, hey, do we have a gun? That started to change the behavior on how are we keeping it Are we locking it up right? How are we talking about gun ownership? Do we need guns in the home? All of these things start to change. So kids are very, I think, important as catalysts to do good behavior. But this absolutely is something that should not be put the burden on children. This is, as adults, it is our responsibility to keep our kids safe so they can grow up and be curious in these environments. You know, we want them to explore. We want them to go play dress up. We want them to rifle through stuff in closets we can prevent them from getting shot very easily by just locking guns up. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, that's an important distinction that kids should be learning about safe storage as part of being a responsible citizen to your community, but it shouldn't be up to them to protect them and their, their playmates when they're, they're playing dress-up or, you know, Wild West sheriffs, whatever, whatever it is that they're playing these days.
2: <laughs> Mike? <laughs> Mike, Mike McLively, in, in, the, in Oakland's work on this space, did the education of young people play a role at all?
3: There's definitely a role, but part of what I was saying earlier was this problem analysis revealed that the, the average age of a perpetrator and victim of gun violence in Oakland was actually closer to age 30. So a lot of the resources and interventions that have been designed prior to the last few years have been really focused on youth. And not to say we shouldn't be providing you know, supportive spaces for our youth. Absolutely, we have to do that. But also, we have to recognize that most cities aren't built up with the structures and the systems to interface with those folks who might be 28 years old with a dozen convictions in their record uh, and have been failed by, mul- by system after system in our country. You know, we have to recognize that a lot of this is the result of systemic inequality, lack of access to education, traumatic experiences when you're a child, and so on. But identifying those folks and then intentionally building up a city's ability to outreach to them, to find them where they are, and then provide them comprehensive services, that is, a re- is fr- frankly, a revolution in how we address violence. And that's a lot of what changed in Oakland was not just running with the myth that, you know, this is a problem with our youth and we need to talk to our youth. That's still part of the solution. Absolutely. But reaching that highest risk population and, you know, one of the ways is if they are shot and and intervening in the hospital setting, but also getting in front of that and making sure we're building relationships with them and engaging in cognitive behavioral therapy and really changing patterns of thinking that can, like I said, because it's such a small population that's actually driving most shootings, that can lead to a huge sea change in a very small amount of time and also helps address the other fundamental inequalities that we see in our cities. I mean, it's hard for a kid to access education when they hear gunshots on their way to school. And if we have a way to reduce that in just a few years, which we've seen in Oakland, we need to be scaling that up. And that's why we've been running around the country trying to get, you know, Oakland's a special place where the city actually voted to tax itself. So $20 million a year are flowing in to both law enforcement and importantly, community groups that are doing this work on the ground. And we've been been trying to push the state of California to vastly increase its investment in those types of solutions. And we've had success there. I mean, just last year, between what Dr. James was talking about in New Jersey with the $20 million increase, California, we're talking about tens of millions of more dollars that are starting to flow to those sorts of solutions. And that is just the beginning. And we're we're really looking to scale this up so that we are spending the amount of money and getting resources to the communities that are most impacted by day-to-day violence.
2: I have another question from the audience that's a a little bit of a shift in topic. Um, The gun industry always says it's not the right time to talk about violence prevention after mass shootings. How do we have that conversation? I want to ask Coach Kerr, because you tend to be quite vocal after mass shootings. This is, you are, (laughs) um, I want to ask you if it's the right time to have this
5: conversation. I I actually think that's changing a little bit. I think that was always the response from the gun industry. I don't, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't feel like that's been the case as much since Parkland. And I think a lot of that has to do with the March for Our Lives uh, kids who are driving so much of it. Um, You know, I I think, uh, you know, that... That has been an amazing organization march for our lives, and they're opening chapters um, you know all over the country uh, educating their uh, their fellow uh, young people um, about gun violence and about uh, you know registering to vote and everything else but to me that that one sort of shifted the topic where or at least the tone of the of the uh, discussion where you you didn't hear as much of it's not the right time. I think now everybody's talking about it. Um, the number th- that is, I think the, the the most shocking was what Kai mentioned earlier that 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 the the I knew that that the number of guns in this country exceeded 300 million. What I didn't know was that was it 20 years ago. You said it was yeah. how much?
6: About one and a half million. One
5: and a half million. Yeah. And, and that, uh, that is a that's just yeah. an astounding number, and, and, um, and that's a whole different topic for another time. <laughs> um, but what, what we can do is, uh, is continue to have uh, these discussions and do as much as we can possibly do to protect children, to educate children. And I, I really believe that now that there's a movement amongst the young people um i think there's more momentum than ever before and i think there's more sentiment among all americans um for for more to be done
3: i just want to say really quickly the the, i think the parkland students are a great example and one thing they did that i think is so important to lift up is one of the first things they did uh, in the wake of that was they went and met with other students in chicago And they helped highlight that this is going on every single day in Chicago. And where's the national march for the more than 700 people who were killed in (laughs) Chicago in a single year? So... I just want to lift up that our youth are really recognizing the the depth of this issue and the the racial injustice that is there and really holding an important lens on that and doing their best to help the national media understand that this is happening every single day. And we need to have moral outrage for both of those types of shootings.
6: And and I think also the medical community and lifting up the work Dr. James is doing, the medical community squarely coming out and saying, we don't care what your politics are. We have to deal with people who are dying every day. And this is a... It's a drain on, not again, not just the financial side, which is really important, but physicians coming out and talking about the trauma that they experience and the families that they have to go then engage with every single day has stopped, has really you know, put the, this whole idea that it's not the time to talk of it on its heels. When the youth are saying this is happening every single day in Chicago and doctors are saying this is every single day in my ER. You can't say it's not the time to talk about it. It's absolutely the time to talk about it. This is where, this is the conversation we're a part of. Our job is saving lives. That's been a big shift in the conversation too, how vocal I think all of these communities coming together has been to say this is a uniquely American epidemic that doesn't happen anywhere else. There is income inequality other places. There is mental health issues other places. There is crime other places. The... Insane access to guns is a uniquely American problem. And we need to... And all of these communities coming together and saying, if we don't come together and comprehensively look at every single one of these routes, plus guns, we're failing our next generation.
2: Let's talk about another immediate response to a mass shooting in another part of the world. New Zealand bought back guns after the mosque shooting. The question from the audience is, could California ever do that? Could the United States ever do that? In the case of of a mass shooting. I, I, I I asked all of you your thoughts on (laughs) this.
6: I, I I will, you know, I think it's one of the things that there, there's a, Sort of an emotional and a practical side to it. I mean, practically, we have 393 million guns, and that's a right. that's a that's a lot, yeah. and uh, just <laughs> probably more than New Zealand. <laughs> that's just a lot of guns. <laughs> right. I think just put, it, but um, there's also been a you know, there's a there's a very interesting emotional attachment. I think that Americans have to guns that is uniquely American that we don't see other places. You know, even, even among, you know, when I was in the Marine Corps, I spent time with Norwegians and Australians and New Zealand and French military, like all of these, these people. And it would come up quite a bit as these sort of, I don't know, funny conversations when you're sitting around bases. But they would ask why Americans like to pretend to be soldiers more than anything else. And they would look around but but and it wasn't like dressing up Halloween pretending to be soldiers is they would bring up these these like media posts of people dressed out in like full tactical riot gear saying that they're good guys with guns walking down the street and they're like we just don't we don't understand what this is. Like why like they're they're more armed than you are and you're hanging out in a war zone. Hmm. That should tell you something. But um but so so I think we have this, there's a culture and the culture is starting to crack. I think the culture is really starting to crack when you're seeing more and more combat veterans talking about the fact that these are these are weapons that are uniquely designed to kill as many people as quickly as possible and in the Vietnam war when they were developed they had a purpose. They don't belong walking down the street in Richmond, Virginia or San Antonio or Oakland anywhere because that's you know this this shouldn't be a war zone. So you're starting to see that shift, but I think in addition to just the vast number, the cultural shift has to happen because right now the you know, the government is literally outgunned by the populace in this country. I'm sorry, that's not a very happy answer. Like, I,
2: <laughs> we're, not here. we're not all here for happy <laughs> answers. I want to get back to... That, another question, very good questions from the audience this evening. When will we invest in urban gun violence from a lens of a symptom of an illness due to a lack of access to health care?
5: Hmm. Hmm.
2: Dr. James. Well,
4: I, I feel like it's a, it's a little bit of what I said, or said earlier. It's a, it is a public health issue. And it is a a symptom, is a downstream consequence again. It's very similar to people who are perpetually unstable with chronic diseases. And um, I actually am a little bit hopeful because, um, as I say, there is light on the horizon. Because people are, just like people are beginning to focus on people who are perpetually unstable in their health and understanding what's driving that. And it's usually because people are more focused on trying to survive. They can't prioritize health. And so they just, you know, they come in, you fix them, you s- reset them to baseline and discharge them right back to what's driving it. Yeah. And so um, on, on, uh, I think we're beginning to pay a bit of attention to that around the country with this whole notion of things like anchor health institutions that really focus on the root causes of these things and even focusing in communities and you know, creating like more uh, local economies and things like that. For, you know, and I think it's the exact same thing with um, you know with, with, with gun violence. Um, same kind of root causes, um, and just like we use trauma-informed approaches to work with people who have been injured by guns, it's the same thing with you know with uh, with everyone else. So, but I am hopeful about it because people are beginning to use these sort of upstream approaches in general. It's not, you know, there's a whole organization of like 45 big healthcare systems, and Kaiser is one of the founding members actually called Healthcare Anchor Network. Um, uh, and there are like these big systems all across the country that are focusing on this. And so I think we understand now that the cycle will continue until we actually go upstream and understand the root of it and address it there to mitigate and eliminate the things that are, that are driving it. So I'm really hopeful about that. It's actually happening. We just have to, you know, find ways to sustain it.
2: There's another question asking if we could be moving towards a way of identifying those who pose a gun violence threat. Mm -hmm. Um, In the context of destigmatizing people with mental health concerns, while educating the public on preventative measures. Any of the work, Mike, that you're seeing address that?
3: What comes to mind for me on this is a major development, I think, in the last few years that folks may or may not know about is this notion of gun violence restraining orders that have really just caught fire and have been adopted starting in California uh, and a few years ago after the Isla Vista shooting And this is a really smart and targeted approach to violence prevention, because like we said, you know, there are hundreds of millions of guns out there, but there are also individuals who show signs of being dangerous to themselves and others. And until recently, in many and most states, there was just not a tool for disarming temporarily those people during periods of crisis. And all of a sudden now, you know, dozen or many states have adopted new this new procedure the gun violence restraining order that's a lot, and we just released a report on this i would encourage people to go to our website uh, smartgunlaws.org and check this out for yourself but we looked at how this was being used in Broward County in Florida and there are incredible examples of people who were planning out very specific attacks mass shootings who h- had their weapons taken away from them and prior to this law being put into place there would probably not be a way to temporarily disarm people in that position. So I'm hopeful that that has just taken off. And again, as another example of something that has bipartisan support is being adopted in states with different uh, ideological beliefs. And again, it's very targeted and it's based on risk, not just based on eliminating access to firearms. So I I think about that as a very powerful tool. And a really important lesson from California from recent years is we need to do a lot of work to educate people on how this tool can be used, whether that's law enforcement or the citizens. When it was first implemented in California, very few people were using it. And so one of our big pushes at Giffords is to help people understand the implementation side, that this tool is out there, provide tools for the for the public to learn how to use it and make sure that it's being used as much as it should. And in Florida, we're seeing, you know, that has prevented literally hundreds of potential shootings from taking place. We need to keep looking at uh, options like that to prevent shootings before they happen.
6: And I think the other side of it, too, is really the whole of medical approach to it. Um, work out of Mass General Hospital is finding right now that if they look at their, their network and system... Um, the vast percent, uh, vast majority something like over 70% of individuals who died by gun suicide had had some contact with a healthcare provider in the previous 30 days it wasn't a mental health care provider but it was some other healthcare provider you know these are individuals who are suffering from chronic disease often who don't see anything else who have been out of work because of of chronic healthcare problems and so really empowering all of healthcare providers to have the tools to talk to their patients about access to lethal means if they might be in some sort of chronic condition has started to save a lot of lives as well. And that's just another, it's, it's not political. It's really hopeful to see these education systems be brought into hospitals to say, you know, if you're a physical therapist, they see a lot of these people. If you're an oncologist, if you're a, you know infectious disease specialist, like, are you screening your patients for access to lethal means? And it's, it's saving lives.
2: There are a handful of questions from the audience, essentially asking where the conversation between people of different opinions on this issue can take place. This one jumps out at me because it begins with the word sports. (laughs) Sports seems to be one of the few places where people of different ages, races, genders, and cultures come together to support a goal what concepts can we take from the sporting arena to unite people to support the prevention of gun violence?
5: Have to start with the coach. <laughs> Cong- uh, congressional pickup basketball games? Maybe? <laughs> <laughs> Does that help? <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's the thing that's so frustrating, right? We, we, uh, you know, we have uh, 90%... Give or take a couple percentage points of people in this country, regardless of their political affiliation, want background checks, and yet we can 't get that passed through through the Senate um, so no matter how you slice it it 's still going to come down to um, a political issue um, and there 's all kinds of different um, components to this as we 're as we 're hearing tonight, uh, but it 's still going to to come down to how much are we, going, are we willing to do, how much is our government willing to do, because all the facts are out there. You know, um, One of the, the best uh, analogies that I've seen is the comparison to the auto industry. I think Nick Kristoff from the New York Times wrote uh, a piece years ago comparing the deaths in the auto industry now uh, to 50 years ago. Fifty years ago, there were ten times as many deaths um, as a result of automobile accidents, and so they've been reduced by tenfold. And you can figure out why pretty easily, right? Car seats, seat belts, airbags, speed limits, uh, just better, uh, better cars, and more safety uh, built into cars. Um, but it, every, you go down the line, you know, driving drivers tests, and so why? Can't we have all that? We, we, we have three, three, how many? 390 million guns in the yeah. country. Um, but why, why can't we have a series of tests that if you want to buy a gun, you have to take these safety tests, you have to take precaution? The NRA, about 15 years ago, uh, a lot of the, uh, the gun companies built uh, fingerprint guns so that when you bought a gun... Only you would be able to fire it. And what they found was they couldn't sell any of them. They just weren't cool, I guess. So the gun companies said, we, we're not selling any of these, so we're not going to make any of them. And that's when the NRA really got involved. And, and then it became more uh, about selling guns than anything. And so why can't we... Turn this into a public health issue why can 't the CDC actually be involved with this um, mm. with why can 't we put money uh, in into governmental studies in, into how can we save people 's lives and we 're not even talking about getting rid of three three hundred million guns we 're just talking about making sure we go through safety protocols just like we did uh, with the auto industry so I think it's a great analogy and I think it's the logical place for this to end up because we're probably going to be fighting over you know the second amendment forever in this country the way things look so why can't we just at least come to an agreement on safety measures wouldn't that be something everybody would be interested in It's interesting there
2: there's a question for you Dr. Hunter but but I want to ask it of each of you and and we can we can be short in our answers but because the question is short if there's one small policy fix you could make tomorrow to help <laughs> what would it be I we might have already heard Coach Kerrs but um I'll start with um, you Dr. Hunter and Okay putting you on the spot yeah,
6: I know yeah um I think the the, I mean, there's, there's a ton of policy solutions that have to happen, but I think the, the first thing that, that has to happen is the actual complete passage of the expanded background check system, because that is going to ensure that each time a gun changes hands, we start with at least a minimum of a background check. And we know that the gun show loopholes, the private sale loopholes, allow for it to be virtually impossible to prosecute trafficking in some states because you can't prove it. Um, It allows for individuals to engage in straw purchases without being able to prove it. So I think that needs to be the first thing that we have happen. There's... Near unanimous support. I mean, ninety percent, as as Coach Kerr said. I mean, I don't think ninety percent of the country thinks my puppy is cute. So, like, I mean, this is this is really a a big, you know, like like a, a big thing. And I think that has to be the first thing we do that will start to save lives. But it also opens the door to how easy it actually is to do these things and and save lives.
5: Yeah,
2: Dr. James, one so
4: one I, policy fix. I actually would have said something very similar because I think if we stop, um, you know, if we can make it. Not so easy, you know, for people to, you know, to get guns in their hands and to have deeper um, checks and things like that. Um, but since you already said it, I'll say another one. Um, <laughs> this I, is I, a good. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that uh, I would make, um, you know, uh, uh, hospital-based violence intervention programs universal and a part of level one trauma centers accreditation yeah. to have these, um, yeah. these programs in place. Yeah.
2: Mr.
3: I would love to see more state-level investments in evidence-based strategies like hospital-based violence intervention programs, and to see that tens of millions of dollars more going to those. Um, Florida, I think, is a great example. After Parkland, they invested $400 million in hardening schools and placing officers with guns in schools. And you can imagine the implications that might have for communities of color. And so I want our policymakers to be funding, you know, evidence-based solutions in most impacted communities, I think we'll see a big change when that happens. And I'd love to see systems like the healthcare system take ownership over this issue of gun violence. This isn't just an issue for politicians to solve. It's not just for law enforcement to deal with. This is for all of our systems to fix. And the healthcare system in particular has a huge role to play. And I think we've heard examples of that tonight. I would love to see uh, the, the Medicaid system reimbursing the health, the, yes. the caseworkers that are at yeah. the heart of the hospital-based violence intervention system. I think those kind of systems change could make a big difference.
4: That's right.
2: I want to ask uh, my last question to Coach Kerr because I imagine that there are a lot of people listening, watching in the audience who have survived gun violence and are dealing with it. Do you have advice for getting through it, for continuing to get through it? You've obviously done okay. We're proud of you. Mm-hmm. But what... Thank you. What do you, what do you say to people who were, for whom this is kind of fresh?
5: Yeah. Um, you know, life goes on and... and um, I think the, the main thing is to lean on, on family and friends, and and um, you know you you never you never sort of get over something, um, but you you uh, you learn to to live your life and still take great joy out of life through your interaction with other people and uh, particularly family and friends, and uh, and I there I don't know if that's advice, but. You keep going. Well, with
2: that, I would like to thank our panelists very much. Dr. Kai Hunter, Vice President of the Brady United Campaign. Dr. Thea James, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Boston University and Director of the Violence Intervention Advocacy Program. Coach Steve Kerr of the Golden State Warriors. And Mike McLively, Senior Staff Attorney at the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. Thanks to all of you. (laughs) And now we welcome Dr. Gloria Duffy to close the program.
0: Wasn't that a terrific panel? Thank you so much.
4: Thanks thank
0: Thanks to our panelists and to you, Brian Watt, an excellent moderator. Yeah. We hope tonight's program has provided some new ways to look at the subject of gun violence. Uh, we thank Kaiser Permanente for their support of the program. I think we heard things that each of us can do here. They don't involve changing national policy in Washington, whether it's Locking up guns in your own environment, joining one of these fine organizations like the Gifford Center or the Brady's Campaign uh, in doing, supporting what they're doing, uh, working in the medical system if you're, you're in that system. Uh, there's something each of us can do. So I hope you will have listened to this tonight and each of you will try to do something in your own lives to deal with this problem. I'm Gloria Duffy. Now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned.